Experts and statistics agree it's easier to find a job with a degree than without one. But some students rack up tens of thousands of dollars in student loans only to discover they can't find work in their chosen field once they graduate. This Radio New Zealand Insight investigates what job prospects are like for tertiary students and what the government and educators can do to match New Zealand's output of graduates to the needs of industry. Tess, how are you? Hey, yeah, how are you? Good, thanks. Good. How can I help? Um, well, I've basically decided I'm going to be doing nursing, yeah. but I'm still not quite sure where. Okay. And I just want to know what my options are, really. And okay. Tess O'Brien is coming to the end of her time at Wellington's Onslow College. She's sitting down with the school's career advisor, Peter Chapman, to talk about her options for tertiary study. Um, so it sounds like you, 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 you're comfortable. Um, you've just got that Y intersection decision to make. Mm. Okay? And, and then, as I say, once you've made that decision, just go for it 100% and don't look back and regret it. Yeah. Okay? There are almost 57,000 unemployed New Zealanders between the ages of 15 and 25. At the same time, half of businesses complain they're struggling to find skilled staff. This month, the government released a draft tertiary education strategy, calling for institutions to tailor their qualifications to better reflect the needs of businesses and get more at-risk young people into jobs. The Minister for Tertiary Education, Stephen Joyce, says it's also boosting funding for tertiary courses with good career prospects and giving more information to prospective students. What we've been doing is saying to providers that we've got to get the, the funding incentives right. And in New Zealand, we've underfunded historically um, relative to other degrees, engineering, for example. So we have been lifting the funding in engineering to encourage providers to invest more in it. And they've been incentivised in the past effectively to do more commerce degrees and more arts degrees because they're cheaper. But critics, such as the Labour Party's associate spokesperson for tertiary education, Megan Woods, says not enough is being done. We do, I think, have some kind of obligation to young people who are getting into sometimes a huge amount of debt carrying out their studies and to ensure that there are jobs at the end of it for them, that we're not just taking people's money, training them up and knowing that there aren't adequate employment opportunities at the other end for them. I'm William Ray and this insight asks if there's a mismatch between tertiary training and employment in the workforce. I plan to study nursing at Fitira. It's always sort of been an option I've looked at. I enjoy like science and stuff like that and I also enjoy working with people. And so, yeah, I definitely think that would be a good thing for me to do. Did the idea of job opportunities come up much when you were thinking about it? Yeah, definitely, because you don't want to be stuck with a degree that you can't use. And I've always had that in the back of my mind when I was deciding. Tess O'Brien's long-term career prospects are good. At a recent New Zealand nursing organisation conference in Wellington, discussions focused on the future demand for nurses. A spokesperson for the group, Hilary Graham-Smith, says an ageing population means graduate nurses are needed more than ever. 50% uh, of our current nursing workforce will retire in the next 20 years, possibly less than that, and so we're going to need those new graduates to develop a, another experienced workforce, and the best time to do it is now, while we've got the experienced nurses to mentor and coach them and, and give them that experience that we're going to need in the workforce in the future. But even in a career like nursing, where there's strong long-term demand for their skills, graduates can struggle to find work. 
restrictions on funding for district health boards and problems with recruiting processes meant half of the nurses who graduated midway through last year couldn't find a job in this country. So currently we have um, a newish system for graduates applying for positions on the uh, nursing entry to practice programs which are situated within DHBs and in that first round, that's quite right, only 50% uh, got jobs but in the second round, so they had two rounds of applications, uh, that moved up to 75%. But 75%, is that a reasonable rate do you think? We would like them all to get jobs. We need to retain those nurses in New Zealand and to do that we have to be able to offer them uh, meaningful work that respects the study and the experience they've had over the three years. And for nurses it's particularly critical they get work straight as soon as they graduate. Yes, that's right, in terms of maintaining clinical competence and also building, as new graduates, building their confidence and being exposed to clinical practice is really important. So... uh, what we have currently is with the new graduate programs in DHBs is um, a vacancy-driven model, although some DHBs have moved to a ring-fenced funding model. What we need is for that fund to be bigger and for there to be more places. I mean, that just sounds like it comes down to more funding in the health budget, essentially. It does, basically, and we know that there's a significant deficit in funding for DHBs, and that's why they're experiencing the staffing difficulties that they are. Over the last few decades, the proportion of people who continue their education beyond high school has risen sharply. In the late 1980s, the government introduced policy changes aimed at moving the workforce away from the traditional manufacturing and construction sectors and to develop what was dubbed a knowledge-based economy. These changes opened up access to tertiary study and the number of students rose rapidly. Between 1996 and 2006, the proportion of 18 to 24-year-olds enrolled in study increased by about a quarter to a third. But the Labour Party's associate spokesperson for tertiary education, Megan Woods, says too many students is not the problem. I think one of the key things for us is that we have an educated workforce and a well-educated workforce where those opportunities are available for all. No, I don't think that we have a problem with too many people in tertiary education. Um, Labour's vision for tertiary education and for our economy as a whole, that we have a highly skilled workforce. What we do have to make sure that we're getting right is the workforce planning that comes after that education is finished. The Chief Executive of Business New Zealand, Phil O'Reilly, has recently been appointed to the board of the Tertiary Education Commission. He says while some new graduates are struggling to find work, local companies are crying out for highly trained employees. The labour services company, Manpower Group, surveyed 650 business owners earlier this year and found more than half of them struggle to find employees with the right skills. Typically they'll be reporting skill shortages in areas like ICT and computing more generally. Uh, along with a wide range of skills associated with science and technology. And those skills gaps have been there often right the way through the global financial crisis. So even though we had rising unemployment, even though we had very high youth unemployment, in fact, we still had employers uh, reporting skill shortages in those kinds of higher tech areas. So it just demonstrates that skills mismatches are still a very big part of our economy. The 2006 census figures show engineering and related applied technologies captured the single largest chunk of students who continued education after high school, nearly 14%. However, less than 4% of people studied science, compared with more than 10% who picked a course in society and culture. Just over 2% studied IT. In its latest budget, the government invested just over $2 billion in teaching tertiary students. 
The bulk of this fund is allocated by the Tertiary Education Commission to individual tertiary providers, which then decide how to fund each course with reference to the government's wider education strategy. Phil O'Reilly says in the past universities have failed to match up their funding priorities with the needs of employers. Some of that will have been changing since 2006. We're still getting far too much activity going on, which is often driven actually by university funding requirements rather than the real needs of enterprises or the economy. Or The fact of the matter is it's much cheaper to train a person with a Bachelor of Arts in History than it is to train an engineer. And that has often led, under previous funding regimes, to universities and polytechnics kind of doing more of that simple stuff, offering more of those courses, simply because they can literally get more bums on seats with that kind of funding. Now, what, what uh, the government's been trying to do in the last few years is shift some of that away. So funding signals that government sends the education system are really important. But we need more conversations like that about saying, how do we make sure that funding mechanisms or funding signals that government sends send the right signals both to universities and polytechnics and to parents and students about the kinds of courses they might take. Phil O'Reilly says people who study things like science, technology, engineering and mathematics, the so-called STEM subjects, can be confident their job prospects will be strong both now and in the future. But other careers have more of a boom and bust cycle. A classic example is teaching. In the 1990s and early 2000s, there was a critical lack of primary school teachers. The government put the profession on its skills shortage list, and retirees were parachuted in to meet the demand. But between 2006 and 2011, the number of new teaching graduates getting jobs fell more than 40%. Many of the jobs new graduates are getting now are in temporary or part-time positions. Hundreds of people like Diane Brady, who finished her primary school training in Todonga last year with a student loan of more than $20,000, now struggle to find steady work. Kettle on. When I um, applied to go onto the course, onto the, my Bachelor of Teaching, I was under the impression there were a lot of jobs out there and that I would be able to get one, not fairly easily, but you know, I wouldn't have such a struggle on my hands. As the course progressed, especially in the last year, we were starting to get warned about that. There's a good chance we wouldn't get a job straight away. Um, I've applied for uh, probably around 50 to 70 jobs. Um, I've applied from the top of the North Island down to mid-south, but I've had no luck for even an interview with all of those jobs. Mainly the letters that we get, well, I get back, are saying they are having over 50 to 100 applicants for each job. Like now, I'm aware that the next graduates are going to start coming out you know, at the end of their semester, so that's a whole other load of people I'm in competition with, really. So it kind of plays on your mind that all these teachers are being educated and then there's nowhere for them to go. The Minister for Tertiary Education, Stephen Joyce, says it's clear there are significant problems for teaching graduates. But he says in the long run their prospects will improve as the country rebounds from the global economic downturn. Because of the GFC you've had a whole bunch of uh, teachers stay in the profession where uh, previously we would have, might have seen a, a level of turnover that would ensure that graduates coming into the profession would have opportunities. And so you get a double effect. You get uh, uh, more people studying because... Um, they take that as an option, and it's a good option instead of going and getting a, a job if there isn't a job for them to get at that point. And then there's also the issue of uh, of uh, less people leaving the profession that they're trying to get into. So it's a short to medium term problem. 
It's difficult to find comprehensive statistics on how many graduates are finding work once they finish their studies, as no comprehensive figures are collected. Universities New Zealand used to release an annual survey to determine how many find jobs in their chosen professions. But a review of that survey in 2008 found a combination of low response rates and the timing of the survey meant the data generated was misleading and it was stopped. As a replacement, Universities New Zealand has commissioned a longitudinal study of almost 9,000 graduates. That study hasn't released any information about employment so far. However, Sandra Gray from the Tertiary Education Union says it's clear there are some courses where there'll never be as many job opportunities as there are students. You know, in terms of the very limited jobs available in some very high-profile um, kind of areas, and I guess the film industry at the moment's had a bit of a boom because of all of the international stuff around um, things like The Hobbit. Um, people suddenly all rush towards that area. And certainly we do see um, usually not public institutions doing this, usually private institutions or kind of international organisations doing it, saying, if you train with us, you'll get a job in, you know, film or television or, you know, and those types of things give people false hope. And I think that's very disappointing for a whole generation of students who discover they don't have what it takes when they get out into the industry. One frustrated film graduate is Simon. He completed a two-year course in advanced digital filmmaking at the privately run UB School of Design in Wellington last year. If you want to get into the video production industry, there are lots of great career options. You could be a video editor, motion graphics designer, video artist, compositor, VFX artist or VFX production coordinator. Bring your creative talent alive and produce your own showreel, ready to impress prospective employers. The course cost $7,500, and when I met Simon, he'd just finished an interview for a job at an electronics store. I just wanted to be in film my whole life, so I've been working in retail while I've been looking for work in film. When they sort of advertise the course, what kind of things do they say about finding jobs? I think they said in the, in the prospectus that there are, the amount of jobs is going up as time goes on, well, it, which, it, which it is, but it's going up a bit too slowly for my liking. I mean, did you think it was in, in any way misleading? Mm, maybe a little bit. Well, we do have a Facebook page um, for job seekers, for, pe for people from my course, and I've, and I've found, a, I found a couple of interviews through that, but no jobs. For some careers, employers argue that extensive multi-year courses won't help students find a job. Together, universities and polytechnics turn out somewhere between 180 and 200 journalism graduates each year. In the meantime, opportunities to work as a reporter are shrinking. Fairfax Media, which owns the Dominion Post, Sunday Star Times and the Press, along with several regional newspapers, plans to cut 20% of its workforce in New Zealand and Australia over the next three years. The Dominion Post's editor, Bernadette Courtney, warns extra study in journalism may not help a prospective reporter's chances of finding work. I don't think you do need a degree. There's, lo there's lots of fantastic journalists out there who don't have degrees. In terms of New courses, I mean Massey and I've heard Canterbury as well possibly are looking at introducing master's courses in journalism. I mean is that something you think is even useful? This is my personal view. I'm looking at your portfolio, the types of stories you can bring to the paper. That is going to be the thing that swings you getting a job or not, not how many degrees you've got. I'm not, I'm not saying the whole industry will think, will think like that. I mean obviously the, ind the industry's gone through a certain amount of turmoil Fairfax is not the only news organisation, media organisation, that has had to sort of restructure and look at its numbers. So the school should be very aware of that. 
I think the onus is on the schools to um, make that really clear to students uh, before they start. And I, I think they do, and certainly myself and my colleagues, when we go to the journalism school, we really push that. It's about your portfolio, and it's about the connections and networks you have. But one sector where higher education is definitely required is science, an area the government has identified as a priority to attract more students. Last year, Stephen Joyce, who's also the Minister for Science and Innovation, released a media statement saying it's essential to encourage more young people into a career in science. One student who heeded that call is Alice Chibnall. The 22-year-old's in her last year of study, doing her Masters in Biology at Waikato University. But she says were it not for the fact she's picked up some practical skills doing in vitro fertilisation at a work placement, she too would be struggling to find a job. I was really hoping for a research job quite passionate about discovering things and all that, so I didn't really mind where I was heading. I just knew that that's where I wanted to go. But you're now thinking that may be a bit unlikely. Yeah. Research companies don't seem to be that stable, and a lot of people in different companies like that are losing their jobs, and they're all downsizing, and so it really seems as though someone who's new in the industry can't compete with all the more experienced people competing for the few jobs that there are. Currently it seems like the only requirements are for technicians for different commercial applications of science, not for actual research itself. Is that the experience of, you, of your classmates as well? well I, think, I think a lot of my classmates are struggling even further in that they aren't uh, learning practical skills that they can actually apply to a commercial industry and therefore their research runs out and then afterwards... They don't have any practical skills they can really apply to anything. I'm not sure on anyone that's actually got a job after Masters that hasn't learned a skill like I have. The head of the New Zealand Association of Scientists, Sean Hendy, says the number of students like Alice Chibnall enrolling in science and technology courses is on the rise. And he says her complaint about a lack of jobs and research is a common one, even for those achieving the highest level of study, a PhD. You know, we've had this increase in the number of undergraduate and even PhD uh, students in science, engineering and technology, but then there's been a bit of a, a, a blockage at the postdoctoral fellowship stage, and this, is, this, this has become particularly acute in the last few years uh, where the government did cut the New Zealand Science and Technology postdoctoral fellowships. And, and that's something that concerns me, that while we're, we're pumping, um, pumping people in at one end of the system, we're not providing them with career pathways uh, at the other end of the system. Now, postdoctoral fellowships have traditionally been for those that are going to carry on in the academic world, um, so they've been preparation for becoming a lecturer or working in a government research laboratory. However, increasingly, just as the, as the frontier of science, technology, uh, science and technology increases, you know, that gets further and further away, um, you, you, you almost need those extra couple of years that you get from a postdoctoral fellowship to be, to be industry ready, to have your science skills and your knowledge at that frontier. Um, so I think they're actually an important bridge into, uh, into employment these days. I estimate we've lost 30 to 40% of our postdoctoral fellowships as a real concern. But Stephen Joyce says scientists' concerns about postdoctoral fellowships are overstated. Those postdoctoral fellowships which were stopped some four or five years ago now were I think about 30 or 40 and the current number of postdocs we did a census last year is currently around 600 so it really is not a significant number in the overall scheme of things. 
what is happening is that the number of doctoral students is growing and um, I think what we are going to see is more people working outside of academia for a period, particularly in those sort of STEM subjects where there are opportunities to do so. So if there is a mismatch between the needs of industry and the output of tertiary educators, what can be done about it? The government has two main tools it uses to influence what subjects students take when they move from secondary to tertiary study. One is funding. Last year, the government boosted the money it provides for science, technology and engineering by nearly $70 million over a four-year period to encourage educators to take on more students. The other is information. Each year, the government publishes an Occupational Outlook Survey, which provides information on what students can expect in terms of pay, student fees and job opportunities for different careers. For example, the latest survey shows doctors, accountants and engineers can expect high fees, high pay and good job opportunities, while a photographer can expect a moderate income in student fees but has limited chances of finding work. To communicate this information, schools rely on their careers advisors, such as Onslow College's Peter Chapman. One of the major rules is that we do get the kids to, to follow their heart. We're all very good at what we like doing, and we all like doing what we're good at. The trick is to like maths, and then you'll be good at it. <laughs> when you're looking at with the future of employability and things like that, that is something that they need to go into with their eyes wide open. We look at um, fashion, for example. A lot of people are wanting to do uh, become Karen Walker, but not a lot of people want to be the people that work for Karen Walker. And Karen Walker employs a lot of people. And you have to show uh, the students that there are alternative pathways than just be the fashion designer. Do you sort of actively promote courses where you know there are jobs available? I mean, the government's very keen on pushing science and technology at the moment. Uh, we do. We pass on what the, what the, where the government's um, trying to push and, and things in areas that are of future growth. We do that with the balancing act of not wanting to crush your kids' plans and dreams. One problem Mr Chapman faces is helping students presented with glowing testimonials and glossy prospectuses determine which courses will give them the best shot at making it in the workforce. What I tend to do with students that are looking at um, PTEs and universities and um, polytechs is to understand that these training industries are a business themselves. So um, they've got to look beyond the glossy pamphlets and the brochures that they're getting and actually investigate, that's part of the process, is, is the investigation. It's the, after all their career and they're buying a product. It's hard because the information is only positive endorsements because that's it's their advertising. So they've got to learn, that's the skill of going beyond the advertising and actually delving in deeper. Sometimes it requires phoning a network of people um, and speaking to people within the industry. Um, that's why opportunities like Gateway and work experience are really crucial to help students make those decisions from a point of view with, of experience and, and asking people what, what they recommend. Stephen Joyce doesn't consider the number of enrolments in vocational courses with limited job prospects, like film and photography, to be a major problem. But he says the government does have plans to provide more information about which providers do well at finding jobs for their graduates. But Megan Woods says by the time students get to high school, it's often too late to capture their interest in areas with skill shortages like science and technology. 
She argues more should be done in schools at an earlier stage to raise the profile of careers with better job opportunities. It was one of the reasons why Labor so vehemently opposed the 2012 cuts to technology funding in the intermediate schools budgets because we knew from talking to teachers and parents and students that a lot of the passion for those technology type um, careers that young people might want to go into start in the, the metalwork and the woodwork classrooms and the um, home economics classrooms of our intermediate schools. Peter Chapman says giving in-depth advice to every student is too big a task for the number of people schools employ as careers advisors. He says the government needs not only to provide more money for advisors, but to make it clear to principals and boards of trustees that careers advice is a priority for the education sector. I teach four different classes as well as doing careers advice for 1,240 students, so it's quite tough. Um, but if I had more of a time allocation to be to solely focused on careers, then I could get around a heck of a lot more a lot quicker. It's reprioritising. I mean, if the government want to um, push that uh, education for careers' sake as opposed to education for education's sake, then they need to put investment in that area. It's important to get the information about the importance of careers to come through the, the top of the school, through principals and board of, boards of trustees. Not so important to go through the careers advisors because you're preaching to the converted there. We know it's important, and, but we do, we're of limited influence in the rest of the school. But Stephen Joyce doesn't think more careers advisors are the solution to shifting more students into STEM subjects. Well, it's my personal view that it's very tough to rely on any single careers advisor in any school to be the font of all wisdom about what every student should study of every course and every career. I think it's very tough. I actually think it's much broader than that. It's more accurate and factual information, uh, including the information that I've talked about, the occupational outlook reports, and also the post-study incomes and, and those sorts of things. I think that's really important, and much more about ensuring that families, students, providers and that industry get involved and don't just sit there pointing at the single careers advisor and saying you've got to solve this problem. The head of Universities New Zealand, Roy Crawford, points out even if students do pick courses in areas with limited job prospects, they're still better off than if they went straight into the workforce. To a very large extent what we're doing is equipping graduates with lifelong skills so they pick up those specific skills that are from their discipline or for their discipline, but they also pick up other generic skills of communication, tolerance, being inquisitive, working in teams, social skills. And many employers in different sectors appreciate those generic skills. I'm William Ray, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight.